Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good morning in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is the first time we've ever gone to Chapel Hill. And if you're familiar with Chapel Hill, uh, you know that that is the home of the University of North Carolina, where uh, Professor Margaret C. Lee is, is there in the Af- Department of African, African American, and Diaspora Studies. A very good morning to you, Professor Lee. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, Professor Lee came across our radar a couple of months ago from a talk that she gave at UCLA, that's the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, about uh, a Chinese trading post in Oshikongo, Namibia. And uh, really, the research that Professor Lee's been doing in the informal trading sector in uh, in Africa among Chinese is something that's of great interest to both Cobus and I, as it's, it's part of the the dynamic of China-Africa relations and, and the engagement that is least understood, in my opinion. And I think that when, you know, Professor Lee, just the first question for you in terms of why Oshikongo and how did Oshikongo in Namibia kind of come to encapsulate what you see as the broader trend about the Chinese informal trading sector in Africa? Well, after spending um, time in, in, um, in China, in Guangzhou, and learning about the African traders that have trading posts there, I was most interested in trying to compare the experience between African traders in China versus Chinese traders in Africa. So I ran across um, an article by a researcher who had gone to Ashikongo. I had never heard of Ashikongo in Namibia. And there he um, discovered this Chinese trading post and read extensively about it. And I determined that I needed to go there to, to complete my work because he undoubtedly had decided to stop traveling there. And it is quite a journey to get there, so I can appreciate the fact that he did his research and decided to move on. Ashikongo um, is almost like being at the end of the world, but it's an absolutely fascinating place to go. And so it was where I felt I could get a very unique story about the Chinese and how they are operating um, in the informal sector in Namibia. Um, and before we, we get to, to the nitty-gritty of how they actually operate, can you give us an idea of what Oshikongo actually looks like and, and what, what, like what it takes to actually get there? Well, Oshikongo actually looks like when you get there, you feel like you're at the end of the world. Um, which is why I imagine a lot of people don't travel that, there and why the government is always surprised when every now and then a researcher um, happens to pop up. So in preparation, which I did not know, in order to do research in Ashikongo, I guess in Namibian period, and I spent decades in the region of Southern Africa, I did not know you need, needed a business visa. So fortunately, when I arrived, the uh, women in immigration gave me a uh, visitor visa. And then uh, I arrived in Vinhook, the capital of um, Namibia. And then I had to find my way to the regional airport. And then from the regional airport, I had to take a small um, plane to a place called Ondangwa, and once I got to Andangwa, I fortunately had arranged for someone to pick me up, and I was very lucky. So 
it's again a very barren place. Um, you have one hotel there that's that's operated by a woman from Portugal, and then you have a newly created Chinese hotel that we can talk about later. It's very interesting. I'm actually t- taking off from that. Um, can you give us an idea about what kind of businesses do the Chinese actually run there, and like roughly how many are are, are actually there? Well, I'll try the second question first. Um, It's very controversial. At its height, which probably would have been around 2008-9, it's estimated there were 100 shops there. Now, since the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, um, there are speculations that a lot of what do they sell? They basically sell basic commodities. They sell anywhere from laundry detergent to clothes to almost anything you can imagine, furniture. And what happens is that because it's on the border post between Namibia and Angola, their major clients are Angolans and not Namibians. They're Angolans because... They have the U.S. dollar with all their diamond and um, diamond wealth and um, oil. Oil, thank you, thank you. Their diamond and oil wealth. They have the U.S. dollar, and the Chinese traders only trade in U.S. dollars, and. So you have loads and loads of Angolans every day crossing the border to buy these goods, and it was located on this border because of the instability in Luanda. And once you cross the border for probably a good mile and a half, you primarily have Chinese shops. And so they control the economy in Ashikongo. And it's um, it's a very delicate situation because a lot of the Namibians are opposed to the Chinese being there. While they appreciate the fact that they create jobs for for some, the pay is so low that many of the workers argue that the only reason they come to work is because they don't want to stay home, that basically their salary um, pays for their transportation back and forth. And their working conditions are pretty challenging. And um, there's a lot of racism from the Chinese towards the um, Africans. Now, that's at the level what we call the level of globalization from below. And these are activities that are below the radar of the government. You have a lot of illegal activities playing out. You have goods coming in from the um, what we call the cheap capital of the world or the fake capital of the world, and that's China. And when you go into these shops that the Chinese own, they're just packed. They're like warehouses. They're just packed and packed and packed with all kinds of goods. A large majority of the Chinese actually live on the premises of their shops, which, again, happen to be huge uh, warehouses. Some, however, do have accommodations across the street from their um, 
from their stores. Mm-hmm. So it's quite an interesting um, makeup. Well, I'd, I'd like to get to dive into the sensitivities a little bit more, and because I think this is one of the areas where it's least understood by outsiders. Um, I my personal experience was in Kinshasa in the DRC, where there were mm-hmm. many many shops exactly the way that you're talking about. So I think in some ways right. that what your experience in Oshikongo is reflective not only across southern Africa, but there's Chinese shops now across the continent, you know, all the way in Morocco right. to Egypt and whatnot. So here's here's what I saw, and I'd like to get your take on it. On the one hand, they were providing employment, but the job the pay was extraordinarily low. On the other right. hand, they were bringing in uh, goods that allowed people with virtually no disposable income to actually buy um, what could be considered in many ways as luxuries. That is, you know, cheap headphones, cheap shoes, cheap clothes, cheap, everything is so cheap. But without the Chinese doing it, they simply wouldn't have the ability to access those products. On the same time, local merchants are complaining, particularly in South Africa uh, and in Namibia, hair, st- hair salons, for example, are complaining that they, they can't compete with the Chinese. So on, on the one hand, you have the fact that uh, they're providing lower-cost goods for people who don't have a lot of disposable income. But on the other hand, they're creating competition for merchants, and there's these racial issues that are also coming down. Um, is, is that complexity, that nuance, do you think is, is that problematic in the long term, or is this just reflective of the first generation of these immigrants, and we're going through some growing pains, and in five to ten years, we might emerge from this in a very different place? Well, the interesting thing about Ashikongo, unlike Ghana, where you have um, miners who have moved in, and as you know, last year, a lot of them were um, forced out of the country. But when you deal with the dynamics of Southern Africa, if you recall, back in the 1800s, you had a lot of Chinese immigrants who were um, employed to work in the mines in South Africa, some of the mines that the indigenous African population would not work in because of the danger. So unlike many other parts of of Africa, you have an indigenous um, Chinese population that's very, very powerful. Many of them obviously have gone into um, Namibia and live in Namibia. So it's not your regular um, situation where they're just arriving. And they have very, very strong contacts with the um, local governments. And, of course, the local governments are getting kickbacks for, um, in exchange for allowing them to uh, maneuver the way they're maneuvering, in, 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 even to the extent of buying work permits, um, following new measures that were put in place because of, xen- of the xenophobia against the the, the, the Namibians had against the Chinese and they, the fear that they were taking all their jobs. And so the government is very supportive of these um, Chinese because they have long-standing relationships. And contrary to what the new policies say, namely that when a Chinese um, entrepreneur comes in, he is supposed to invest in ideally a greenfield investment where you actually create a manufacturing plant and hire people. This is not the case. There's one company that was created and now is closed. So it's kind of like the joke of the, among the Chinese that they can bring in anything, um, good, uh, equipment that doesn't work and the government doesn't say anything to them. So 
you have the you do have however the newer chinese who don't have as much power as the older chinese so when it comes for example to maneuvering uh work permits instead of visas um the older Chinese who have been there, who are well established, they have far more power, and they can charge the new Chinese coming in up to twelve thousand euros for a permit. And um, wow, twelve thousand euros! Right? Yes. It's, yeah, that's it's a, a, it's a huge. A it's, yes, and then some of them can get it for twenty five hundred, but then they don't get all the other benefits that may come with paying, you know, twelve thousand euros. You, you think how much time it takes to pay back twelve thousand euros in the businesses that these these kind of these small businesses that they're running? It must be a very long time. Well, the other thing that you have to keep in mind, which I've learned about what the Chinese do, is this: uh, they put together back home huge amounts of money and they send one or two people with that money with the idea of making large sums of money that will ultimately have an impact back in China so that they will send that money back to China and many in the village will benefit those who have made contributions to the well-being of one or two people traveling to make the money and I think one of the things that I think is happening is that you have a lot of poor Chinese who have been told that they can become very wealthy in Africa. And so people take chances, and they are becoming very wealthy. Now, there are some that are not having as much luck as others. There are some that are following those who have made lots of money, and they find that um, because of pressure from the locals who are in the informal sector, that they are um, criticized and the government is having to take action to actually export them out of the country. Mm. So it's a very complex situation, and it really has to do with each individual place in Africa where the Chinese um, traders are working. Now, in the case of Ashikongo, again, it's very different because there's a free trade zone that allows the goods from China to come in free, which means the Namibian government makes no profits. And then they increase the price of the goods when they sell them to the um, Angolans, are the primary people who buy these goods. So, and at times the government of Angola is also losing out because sometimes they too underprice those goods. It's a no-win situation for the local population. You can preempt, um, I'm sure, a question that you're going to ask is, how do they have so much power in this one particular place? meaning that they own all the front property. So the minute that you cross over from the Angolan border into Namibia, all you see are Chinese and Chinese companies so that local companies have no, have no chance in competing. Um, and it's because of illegal activities Go on, I'm sorry. No, I'm just curious. You, you brought up the word racism earlier. And, and, and I guess mm-hmm. I, I'm – and this is one of the, the points of tension between the Chinese and, and, and Namibians and, and a lot of different 
communities across the continent. And, and I guess, is, is racism the right word to describe the tensions, in part because, sure, the, the Chinese are, are very well known for being very, you know, critical to the point of obviously offensive and to, to accuse Africans of being lazy and all these other kind of horrible, horrible things. But I, I wonder if when I think of racism, I think of kind of the the European or the Jim Crow, which was more of a superiority type of, of dynamic here. Whereas what I look at what's happening with the Chinese in Africa is similar to what happens with Koreans and African Americans uh, in the United States, where you have these two divergent cultures that have no experience dealing with each other. They have no context to interact with one another. And so they default in the first generation to being archetypal, stereotypical, racial in many ways. And then as the as they have more time together, they develop communication pathways that allow them to have more productive communications. And so I guess I'm wondering if racism is the right word to describe the tensions. I would, yeah, I would definitely say racism or white or Asian superiority is correct for those who are operating at the level of globalization from below. Those who are actually working from the Chinese are experiencing a great deal of racism. They're not only called lazy, they're called um, niggas and all kind of derogatory terms. But this is not um, happening just in Chicago. This is happening in China itself. So people are very demoralized. And as one person said to me, how do you expect Take people not to be lazy if you're paying them, um, you know, uh, ran, the South African ran 350 a month, and depending on um, the exchange rate, that could be as little as $35 a month. And then not allowing, allowing them to have lunch breaks, forcing them to work in some cases seven days a week, uh, although most say they work six days a week, they don't. Um, have holiday pay, uh, no social security. There's nothing that's planned for their future. But that's but so that, you but, can't but, expect but, people. But, but I'm sorry though. But no, very few. I mean, African companies don't provide those for the most part. Um, there's very few. I, I mean, I'm just wondering: is that is, is that only the Chinese who are doing that, or is that common with a lot of local companies? And and and, and well, let me just say that there are Lebanese there, Pakistanians there, and what. They say to me is that the the local Namibians say these other groups abuse, but at least they pay better. Okay. They pay more than a living wage. We don't even get a living wage from the Chinese. So, yes, going back to, you know, having access to goods that they normally would not, um, that's part of the globalization from below and the um, fake goods that are brought in. So yes, in some respects they benefit, but they um, do fall apart. They're very cheap. And at the same time, they most that I talk to feel that they are not treated well. I talk about earlier in the, in the, the, um, in the paper that you have, more and more governments are coming after the Chinese, they're going after the Chinese and forcing them to modify their policies, forcing them to leave their countries because it, it has become such a um, difficult position for Africans who have historically made their living 
the majority of the informal economy. Could you like how, how do you foresee this this going in the future? Um, obviously, you know, kind of at the same time in Africa has more, has more and more Chinese, you know, permanently settling in Africa, and as you mentioned, you know, kind of a lot a lot more kind of resistance against their presence and a lot more kind of government crackdowns. How do you see it developing in Namibia and Angola um, and Congo particularly in in the future? Well, I like to think of the the continent in general. Um, I think it's going to be very problematic, and I'm, I would like to be wrong, but here is my take. We, since we're talking about globalization from below and the informal sector, let me start there. The ability of the Chinese to infiltrate the informal sector is not new. What appears to be new and someone needs to study is the extent to which they have invaded the informal economy in Africa. The continent as a whole is very poor, not because it doesn't have resources, but because the governments choose not to put those resources in development. So if you have countries where the majority of people make their living in the informal sector and through remittances, then what's going to happen down the road if the Chinese take over the majority of these informal sectors? As you indicated before, the complaints are overwhelming that they cannot compete with the cheap Chinese goods. Mm. So you have more and more people who are unemployed. And governments have allowed the informal sector to operate because they don't have the means to employ all of these people or they have opted not to take under their wings this huge task. So that's one concern, that if you destroy the African informal sector, what's going to happen to the people who are being pushed out of the informal sector? Okay. Now, on the other hand, you have leaders who operate, as I will will term, globalization from above, who are in cahoots with the Chinese and have no problems in general with what the Chinese are doing because the Chinese are building infrastructure, which is vital for Africa. The Chinese are building... Um, roads, they're building schools, they're building government buildings, ministries of foreign affairs. So they are investing in a way that no other power has come in and invested. So it's very difficult for African leaders as a whole not to feel that this is very good for the continent. But who are the beneficiaries? They're not the majority of people. They're the leaders. And so they get wealthier while the majority of people get poor. Kobus, you know, what's interesting listening to Professor Lee is, once again, it goes back to what Professor Deborah Braudigam has talked about so many times, is that uh, China and Africa is like the elephant and the blind man. 
you know, some people see it, you know, as a long, thin animal. Some of it see it as a big, husking animal and whatnot. And you get to see the complexity in everything uh, between this relationship uh, in Oshikongo, Namibia. Professor Lee, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the complexities of this relationship. Some good, some bad. Um, it's definitely going to be the most, in my opinion, the most interesting aspect of this, di- of this dynamic and the engagement is at the informal sector because it affects the lives of so many people. And, and too often in the China-Africa uh, discussion, the narrative, the debate, we focus on the formal sector, the state-owned enterprises. We focus on the right. diplomatic, the big contracts, the infrastructure. But yet the numbers of Chinese people in Africa now vary between 750,000 to 2 million. There's no way to accurately account for how many who are there. And so many of them are in the informal sector. And the impact on the demographics, the culture, uh, the economies, and the livelihoods for so many people is, uh, is, is going to change, for better or for worse. We will see. I, I think you, from taking your comments, you, you're not very optimistic. Um, so we'd like to maybe come back to you next year and the year after to see, kind of touch base with you to see how you are, how, how, how your research is going. But once again, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. And uh, your research is absolutely fascinating. And again, we'll be back uh, soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. On behalf of Kobus van Staden at Witts University, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>